We translate for those who can't understand. We write for those who can't hear. We describe for those who can't see. Subti Subtitles and accessibility for film, television and theater. Subti.com Fred, 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 Fred. Benvenuti su Fred Film Radio, the Festival Insider. This is Fred Film Radio, I'm Eddie Bertotti. Clémence Ferri-Latour for Fred Film Radio, en direct du Festival de Cannes. Tantanni sono senza un sacchino, hanno scioccato. Alain Bacon for Fred Film Radio. Marco Mamaragan. Fred, Fred, the Festival Experience in 23 languages. Cinephile, welcome to the first episode of the Big Fred Tuesday of 2022. This is Fred Film Radio's weekly show on all things cinema with a particular focus on independent filmmaking and the international film festival scene. The show is hosted and produced by yours truly, Matt Micucci. Welcome aboard. We're going to ease back into our weekly routine of film conversations after the holidays, but I want to take this opportunity to also wish anyone listening to the show a happy new year. The question is, what have we got in store for today's show? Well, we've got a short interview with director Hong Seong-yun about her award-winning drama, Aloners, recently part of the 2021 edition of the Torino Film Festival. We'll also be celebrating the lifetimes and legacy of the great American actor Marlon Brando in our first Celluloid Heroes segment of 2022. We'll be revisiting interviews from our fabled archives, some of our recent interviews highlighting the filmmakers of the EFP's Europe Voices of Women in Film program at the Sydney Film Festival, and we'll return with the first recommendation for essential cinephile viewing in our knockout conclusive segment, Popcorn Classics. With all that being said, and for the first time in 2022, fire up an audio teeny and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. This is the Big Fred Tuesday. Fred. Cinephile, last year we were media partners of the European Film Promotions Europe, Voices of Women in Film, which aims to showcase the works of European women filmmakers at the Sydney Film Festival in Australia. In case you missed those interviews, they are available on fred.fm forward slash UK. But let's listen to one of those interviews right now. Here's a clip from Christiana Palmieri's interview with Eline Gering, director and screenwriter of Nico. Take a listen. Nico is a very powerful story about a woman, a young woman who struggles to regain self-confidence after the traumatic experience of a xenophobic attack. Um, Eline, tell us more about Nico and her story. Nico uh, is a Persian-German woman who never thought that there is any chance that she's not belonging to somewhere. And uh, so she enjoys her summer in Berlin with her best friends and her patients. She's a nurse. And she's a quite positive and self-confident woman. But then an attack takes her out of this feeling, uh, a racist attack, who shows her, wow, um, not everyone thinks like this. And this changes her whole behavior, her whole feelings. She's, uh, she, she, she isolates herself. She's not so positive anymore. Um, and on this way of um, also her friends and patients, they lose contact to her. Um, because she feels it slowly, she decides to change something. She has to change something. So she starts um, to take some classes. Uh, with Andy, the karate teacher. So, and um, he sh- somehow he somehow f- gets in contact to her, and she opens up for him. Um, so, 
it changes her to find a new person in herself that she was not knowing before that there is this inside herself. So, yeah, this is the story. Um, and on this way, she uh, she meets Ronnie. And Ronnie also knows, because she's from Macedonia, how it feels when you always um, are not seen as a human being, more as, as someone who's from somewhere else. And I think this this frustration and the sadness about this topic, uh, we, we wanted to show in this film. Yes, you, I, you're totally um, telling me what I felt while watching the film in relation, in particular in relation to um, Nico and uh, the multiple, multiple encounters uh, with other people in this, in the, during the film. So I think relationships play an important role in Nico in the film. We follow Nico while she interacts with her patients, with her friend uh, uh, Rosa, the karate instructor, as you said, uh, and the, 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 the girl from uh, Macedonia, the fanfare. So um, I, I, I think th th this story, um, Nico's story, is also told through the relationships that she establishes with uh, other people. W would you like to elaborate on this? Yes, Christina, this is uh, some, something that was very important for us to, um, uh, to, to, to take all characters she's uh, in interaction with, if it's friends or patients or this karate teacher or Ronnie from the fairytale, that they are all standing as a, a, for a mirror from her feelings. So they're mirroring her um, from the first minute of the film until the last um, we needed this very, uh, it was very important to, to build the film this way because um, we, we, the three of us, like Francie Fabritz that made uh, the camera, but also was a co-writing with us and Sarah that produced and played and also wrote. And the three of us were sitting um, weeks together and tried to find a solution to not um, To, to not put Nico in a victim narrative, to, to not make her the poorish little woman that, that went, goes through this horrible phase of her life, um, that cries all the time and is passive all the time. We wanted to, to give her the strong feeling to empower herself. And therefore we needed all these characters around her who, um, try to reach her somehow. Is it answering your question? Uh, absolutely. It's exactly Super. what I, I felt while, while I was watching the film. Like the, 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 the narrative is really based on uh, the relationships that Nico establishes with uh, uh, people around her. Um, another question I have for you, Elena, is um, why did you want to tell this story, you and, and Sarah Fazilat, the, the, uh, who uh, plays uh, um, Nico, but she's also a screenwriter, co-screenwriter. Why, why did you want to tell this story? What was your motivation to make this film? I remember it was, I guess, eight years ago, meanwhile, that, uh, that Sarah, during she was studying her first years in the uh, DFFB in the Academy for Film here in Berlin, 
the same year she started to study it, I started um, direction. Um, so we we worked quite from the first films. We we started to work together and became uh, good colleagues and friends. And on this way, we we both were so frustrated about so many situations that were not only racist, also sexist. And um, and we started to talk a lot about our feelings concerning this, these topics. Um, plus that um, the German film industry here, especially in, in TV, is uh, is is casted um, more is still very very white driven the the arab people for example um or asian people they are very often um put in cliched characters so and we we we, we talked about these topics a lot and on some point we were sitting there and, and listened to each other and it was also a very emotional uh, situation and we both said wow, we have to make a film about it together. We really have to sit and talk about this anger in us. And we, on this way um, of dealing with this anger, we found out that behind this anger is such a huge sadness about this uh, daily life of a woman that is not belonging in a, in a, in a, how do you say, like in a box. To listen to the full interview, check out fred.fm forward slash UK. That's fred.fm forward slash UK. Fred. Cinephile, welcome to the first of our Celluloid Heroes segment of 2022. For those unfamiliar with the format, this is the segment of the show where every week, or whenever I have the space and time for it, I celebrate the life and times of an artist who left an indelible mark on the history of cinema. And for this first segment of the new year, I decided to talk about one of my very favourite actors, Marlon Brando. Before we begin, I must remind you that this segment is essentially split into two parts. In the first part, I provide you with a biographical overview of the artist in question. And in the second part, which will be later in the show, I highlight three of their main works that I believe to be particularly essential to anyone unfamiliar with them. Marlon Brando was born in Omaha, Nebraska in 1924. His ancestry was mostly German, Dutch, English and Irish. So despite the common misconception, there appears to have been no Italian in there at all. He was the son of a salesman and an actress and picked up acting himself after he was expelled from the military academy for insubordination. In 1942, he moved to New York City and studied under the great Stella Adler at the Dramatic Workshop. With his visceral, brooding characterizations, a tendency to mumble and slur his lines, and an endless array of compulsively watchable idiosyncrasies, he broke with traditional acting conventions and spearheaded the seminal method acting movement of the period. In 1947, he achieved stage stardom for his performance in Elia Kazan's production of Tennessee Williams' A Streetcar Named Desire. And in 1951, he established his film star status by reprising the same role in Kazan's adaptation of the play. Kazan also directed Brando in his first Oscar-winning performance in the 1955 crime drama On the Waterfront. The one featuring his legendary could-have-been-a-contender monologue that is somewhat of a favourite at auditions. 
In the 50s, Brando's unmatched charisma made him hot property. He showcased an uncanny ability to elevate the standards of any movie he appeared in. His repertoire was wide-ranging, adapting his technique to interpretations of such historical figures as Mark Anthony and Napoleon Bonaparte, or such iconic roles as that of the leader of an outlaw motorcycle gang in The Wild One from 1951. In 1955, he even starred, sang and danced alongside Frank Sinatra in his only musical performance Guys and Dolls. In 1961, he released his only directorial effort, One-Eyed Jacks, which remains a cult classic and an anomaly in the Western genre. However, the 60s proved to be an odd time for Brando, underwhelming in comparison to the previous decade. It was during this time that he began to show an increasing disdain for the acting profession. He once said, Acting is the expression of a neurotic impulse. It's a bum's life. Quitting acting, that's the sign of maturity. It was as iconic turn as Don Vito Corleone in Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather that rejuvenated his career in 1971 after a string of questionable and underwhelming artistic choices. For this role, Brando earned a second Oscar, though he refused to accept it in protest against the stereotypical portrayals of Native Americans throughout motion picture history. The following year, Brando's comeback seemed complete when he starred in Bernardo Bertolucci's arthouse hit film Last Tango in Paris. But for the remainder of that decade, he remained elusive and only appeared in five more films, most notably on cameos in Superman from 1978 and Apocalypse Now from 1979. Brando's final two decades in cinema appear odd and trivial, yet his influence on screen acting remained profound and its legendary status untouched even as he continued to sporadically appear in movies that were clearly beneath him. Arguably, his last great performance was a hilarious send-up to his godfather character in The Freshman from 1990. For the most part, Brando retreated to his private Polynesian atoll. Marlon Brando died in 2004. His passionate performances and riveting screen presence has left a profound mark on film acting. But throughout his life, he also applied his fame to raise awareness on such wide-ranging activist topics as fair housing laws and apartheid. In 1999, he was named by Time as one of only six actors in its list of the 100 most important people of the 20th century. In a moment, I will highlight three films that I feel best represent the genius of Marlon Brando and are particularly recommended for the newbies who may want to dig deeper into his cinematic legacy. But for now, we'll have more conversation on The Big Fred Tuesday, so stay tuned. Fred Film Radio. Joining me at this time on The Big Fred Tuesday is Hong sung Yun, director of Aloners, an award-winning South Korean drama about a solitary woman who re-evaluates her isolated existence after her neighbour dies alone in his apartment. I thank you for joining us and defying any possible language barriers. And my first question is quite simple. Where did you get the idea for this film? Where did it come from? The idea came from my very own experiences. I've always been a very sensitive person, someone who got easily hurt from relationships. And at some point, I just got tired of this fragility of mine. So in my 20s, I decided to find a way to live all by myself in a complete independence. But then new questions came up. Those questions like, what does a completely independent life really mean? Is it even possible? 
This film is about those questions that I asked to myself, and some answers that I could grab out of them. So, do you think that nowadays people are more disconnected than ever? I'm not sure if people nowadays are more disconnected than before, but one thing that I think is happening nowadays is that. Got easier to make people believe that they are somehow connected. You use all those social network services such as Instagram and chat on WhatsApp, but it doesn't always mean that you're not alone. You just don't realize it. Um, what are the challenges of making a film that focuses on the life of a protagonist who is "quote unquote" alone? Since Tina is a self-isolating character, she doesn't express much of her emotions directly. She doesn't chat with other people. She doesn't write diaries. She doesn't laugh. She doesn't cry. So I had to find a way to describe her feelings and those uh, with. Images and situations only, and it was a challenging task when I was making the film. Gong Seonggyeon, who plays the protagonist of the film, actually won an acting award at the recent Torino Film Festival, where, of course, Aloners was screened. What was it like to work with her and uh, build this character together? She was perfect. I couldn't ask more. She understands what it is to be the leading actress of a film. And this is something quite surprising, given the fact that it was the first feature for her too. She always stood by my side as a faithful companion for the director. So, I guess I was lucky to have her with me in my debut film. I'd like to thank the director Hong Sungyun for joining us, and we'll be right back for more show in a moment. Fred Film Radio. Joe Wright's cinematic take on the musical of Cyrano is currently gracing the screens around the world, so it's time to revisit Chiara Nicoletti's interview with a director about the movie, recorded during the recent Rome Film Fest. Take a listen. So I was thinking that despite replacing, you know, Cyrano's features and characteristics, the play remains a classic. So I was wondering, I want to ask you, what do you think defines uh, a classic and how do you approach it so beautifully every time? Mm, uh, I think a classic is often defined by its longevity um, and, and whether uh, a piece of work can speak to generation after generation. Uh, and I think that often comes from a kind of specificity that makes the work universal. Um, when I approach uh, a classic text, I try and respond to it very personally. Uh, I try not to worry too much about the baggage of prestige uh, and just see the thing as openly as I can. Do you think, uh, speaking about, you know, universal themes, uh, isn't it the, the Serrano, the origin story of every, I don't know, how cast story ever written? I mean, what do you think? About, about an outsider, you know, the, the archetypal story about an outsider ever written? 
Um, yeah, I think that um, it is a story about an outsider. Um, it's a story about someone who um, feels other. Um, uh, and uh, But it's also a story about words and the failure of words. Um, and it's about human connection and our failure to connect. And uh, while watching, I was thinking that You know, there's always this eternal conflict, I think, and I think the Serrano uh, speaks to us very um, clearly about that. Uh, you know, the conflict among the romantic idea we have about love and what it should be supposed to be or what love really is. So I was thinking, did you solve this conflict? What is love? I have never solved this conflict. <laughs> and, uh, and, and even if I did, uh, it would be a personal, um, uh, specific uh, resolution for me as an individual and not necessarily for others. How did you handle this time, you know, the, the balance, considering that you also introduced to your incredible style also the musical element? Mm. I mean, I again, it's like I tried to pretend that the film wasn't a musical. In fact, it's not. I kind of see the film as a movie with songs uh, rather than in the kind of grand musical tradition. Um, I tried to make... Uh, the film kind of flow um, naturally between between dialogue and, and songs uh, so that there was a sense of it being a natural progression, uh, a natural expression, rather than um, now we're going to stop and sing a song. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Grazie. And we've been talking to Joe Wright, director of Cyrano, screening at the 16th edition Rome Film Festival in the official selection. And this is Chiara Nicoletti for Fred, the Festival Insider. Fred. Cinephile, this is the second part of this week's Celluloid Heroes segment. This week we are celebrating the legacy of the iconic and amazing Marlon Brando. And in this part, I highlight three of his works that I feel best represent him and are particularly recommended to anyone who knows nothing at all about Brando and may want to dig deeper into his filmography. Now, Marlon Brando is one of the most iconic and groundbreaking actors to have ever appeared on the big screen. And during his stellar career, he left behind a seemingly endless number of unforgettable performances. So it's a particularly arduous task to pick and choose just three of those performances from his entire body of work. But these are my picks. I must tell you that you'll probably find two of them are pretty predictable, but my third choice is kind of left field. But there's a reason for it, and we'll get to it in a moment. So let's begin with the most obvious choice of all. Marlon Brando as Don Vito Corleone and Francis Ford Coppola as The Godfather from 1971. And this should really be all I need to say because we're talking here about one of the most famous and most imitated roles in film history. It's worth mentioning that not only was this an Oscar-winning turn for Brando, but also one that essentially rejuvenated his career after an underwhelming period of box office flops. Brando was so committed to this role that he did his own makeup and came up with the whole idea of stuffing his cheeks with cotton for that bloated look on his soft-spoken dawn. The second pick to me is essential because it's a combination of the 
method acting techniques that Brando brought to the fore during the 1950s, which very much aims at a more personal and experiential connection between the actor and the character he or she portrays. So my pick is On the Waterfront by Elia Kazan from 1955, which incidentally was another Oscar-winning turn. Martin Scorsese once described Brando's performance in this movie as the purest poetry imaginable in dynamic motion, and it's hard to disagree. Not to mention that his legendary delivery of that I could have had class, I could have been a contender monologue has made it one of the most powerful monologues in American film history and an absolute favourite among actors at auditions. So, like I said earlier, my third pick is slightly more left field. It's actually a film that has its fair share of passionate fans, but also its fair share of detractors, and both are absolutely understandable. My pick is Brando's only directorial effort, One-Eyed Jacks from 1961, where, of course, he also plays the lead role. This is a Western, but an absolute anomaly within this genre. Much has been said about its tumultuous production, but what is fascinating to me is seeing Brando transplant some of his defiant and trailblazing energy into directing in much the same way that he had done it in acting. Make no mistake about it, this is an eccentric and somewhat self-indulgent movie, but that's kind of part of its greatness, as a reflection of Brando himself, or an extension of himself. In any case, there are several other movies that I could have mentioned, from A Streetcar Named Desire to The Fresh Man and Beyond, but we've only got so much time on this show, which is why we need to get a move on it. Marlon Brando, we speak your name. And we salute you. And as far as we are concerned, we'll be right back for more Big Fred Tuesday goodness in a moment. Fred. Cinephile, let's carry on revisiting our interviews with directors who were selected for the latest edition of EFP's Europe, Voices of Women in Film, from the Sydney Film Festival in Australia. This is a clip from Christiana Palmieri's chat with Angeliki Antoniou, director of Green Sea. So, Angeliki... Uh, let's talk about uh, your film, Green Sea, um, which is a charming comic drama about a woman with no memory who starts a new life as a cook at a rundown seaside tavern. But, but, but the story you tell in Green Sea is much more than this. It contains several layers of narrative, identity, loneliness, life trajectories, friendship, would you like to elaborate on these layers? Yes. Um, first is what I want to say that um, uh, for me it was very important that um, um, in this story uh, there is a matter of identity, yes, and uh, this woman, she has no identity. Eh? The protagonist of the film, she has no identity because she has lost her memory. So she has to find her identity again. Uh, and she tries to regain and find again her identity through her offering. Her offering is uh, the only thing she remembers, uh, cooking. So a woman without memory creates memories for the others. And she gets back from the regulars, uh, feelings, recognition, love, and everything she needs to recover in a way. So I loved this idea that, uh, uh, and anyway, the, 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 the people that they go to the tavern 
the regulars, they are uh, lonely as well. Most of them are, are lonely and even the, the owner of the tavern is a, a lonely uh, person. So I thought one needs the others and we need the others to make it. She needs the others to make it and they need her to, 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 to create a bond uh, among them. And that was a very interesting story, you know. I absolutely agree with you. I think you managed to interconnect all of these layers together in a very beautiful narrative, which really speaks about identity and loneliness. So uh, absolutely, I, this is what the, the message of the film to me. And you know, today, uh, most people, you know how we work, you know, even due to the pandemic, uh, we are working at home, we were isolated, we had a laptop or a computer, watching films, not having contact with friends and relatives. I mean, this is very hard. And um, I, I think the film uh, brings a little bit of light and of, 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 of hope. Eh? It's a feel-good film um, without providing easy answers for the audience, yes? And um, let's just show the Green Sea is a, it is a less, a less is more film with many different layers behind its uh, minimalistic form. Um, and Green Sea is not a film about cooking only, though cooking plays an important role. Yes, indeed, in a, in a very meaningful way. Um, Angeliki, um, what was... Um, uh, the, your motivation in making this film, uh, what prompted you to, to tell this story? Um, um, one day I was, uh, I visited a bookshop in Athens. Uh, I was looking for, for a new idea and uh, I, uh, I, I didn't know what to do, and I thought I want to make a, a Greek film and not a mixed film. You know, all my previous films were uh, mixed, uh, you know, uh, because I have studied uh, in Germany and lived in Berlin as well. Um, all my previous films had uh, uh, social issues and were mixed you know, mixed language, mixed uh, issues. And I, I, I had the feeling during the financial crisis in, in Greece that I would like to make something for, for, uh, for Greece. And so uh, I visited a bookshop and I found this book uh, by Evgenia Fakinou. She's an acclaimed uh, Greek uh, writer. Uh, the Greek novel, the, the title of the Greek novel was To See the Sea. And I loved the idea, uh, I, 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 I read the, the backside of the book, and I love the idea that a woman who has no memory still remembers how to cook and uh, creates memories for the regulars of a rundown seaside tavern. I thought that it's a, it's a very crazy and unique story and quite different from my previous films, which had been realistic, dramatic, and uh, treated really uh, hard social things. And so I went for it. Oh, well, and it's definitely a, a truly Greek story, no doubt about that. 
it is uh, it is inspired by this novel, but of course I must tell you when I met the writer, I asked her to give me the freedom I needed, and I said, okay, your book is your book, your novel is your novel, but uh, it's your child, but please uh, let me adopt your child, that I want to make something else uh, out of it. So I had complete freedom. She's a very generous person. She's a very, she's a famous uh, writer and she's a, a, a very generous person, really. One of the most generous uh, persons I have met in my life. And she permitted uh, me to do what I wanted to do with her novel. So I changed uh, many things. I, I changed the dramaturgy. I, 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 I found um, um, this green sea attitude. I changed the title. Uh, I changed many things. I, I, I created uh, a new story, but of course I kept uh, the main idea uh, of uh, the woman who has a problem with her memory cooking in, uh, in uh, somewhere, uh, somewhere for regulars in a very simple tavern in a shady tavern. And I, of course, the character of Rula, of the owner of the tavern, exists as well. There are some things I, I, I kept and many things I changed. To listen to the full interview, check out fred.fm forward slash UK. That's fred.fm forward slash UK. Fred Film Radio. Cinephile, welcome to the first of our fabled conclusive segments on the Big Fred Tuesday of 2022, Popcorn Classics, where every week I talk about a film that I would consider to be essential cinephile viewing. This week's movie is In Bruges from 2008, directed by Martin McDonough, who also wrote its screenplay. In Bruges tells the story of two hitmen who find themselves in the title Belgian city, waiting for their next mission and reflecting on their previous assignment. The story already is fascinating because to me, it kind of evokes the likes of Samuel Beckett in the sense that it is a rare case of a movie where the protagonists wait for something to happen. The result is beautiful and strikes a masterful balance between heartfelt drama, dark comedy, and everything in between. It is also underrated and profound. One of the most surprisingly engaging aspects of En Bruges is, in fact, the exploration of that age-old theme of the past and how it can come back to haunt you. The cast is stellar and features the likes of Dublin's finest, Brendan Gleeson and Ralph Fiennes. And for his turn as one of the guilt-stricken hitmen, Colin Farrell won the Golden Globe for Best Performance by an Actor in a Comedy Motion Picture. I should also mention that the dialogue is quick-witted and wonderful and includes several memorable one-liners. For all these reasons and more, I would highly recommend revisiting or exploring In Bruges by Martin McDonough from 2008. I give it five cups of popcorn and five bags of mulled wine because I'm of the camp that strongly believes that mulled wine is not and should not only be considered a Christmas drink. Everybody fights their own battles. I guess this one is mine. In any case, we've reached the end of the show. I thank you very much for listening. Join me again next week for more Cinephile Explorations on a new episode of The Big Fred Tuesday. In the meantime, don't forget to explore more of our content across the various channels on fred.fm and in multiple languages as well. Till the next time, stay healthy, stay safe, stay strong, stay cinephile, and stay tuned to Fred Film Radio, the festival insider. Fred, 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 Fred. 
Hello and welcome to Fred Film Radio. I'm Amani Mohammed. Fred Film Radio, sono Paolo De Marchi. Antanni, sono Senso, no Sakshin, no Shokayo. Fred Film Radio, sono Dana Knight. Clémence Perilatour, for Fred Film Radio, en direct du Festival de Cannes. Fred, Fred, the festival experience in 23 languages. Fred Film Radio, 24-7 on Fred.fm and smartphone apps.